Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on David Whitehead. David is a longtime artist manager who epitomizes taste and independent spirit in the choice of artists he works with, as well as the perspectives he brings and the actions he takes. As you'll hear from our talk, David cares deeply about his artists and how the modern music business, with all of its challenges and opportunities, impacts them. A stroll through just some of the artists past and present on David's main road management roster include Joe Jackson, Joe Henry, Hugh Laurie, Laurie Anderson, I mean, Laurie Anderson, come on, Natalie Merchant, Helmet, Luna, David Byrne, and the man who caused our paths across, David Bowie. And yes, I've left several off this list who are equally impressive. What kind of person counsels and guides such a beautiful selection of artists? Let's find out. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am great. I am great. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. It's been a long time. It has. You know, I was thinking this morning that um, it's so funny. I, I, I don't know if it's unique to our business or if other people experience this, but, you know, I've known you a long time, but I don't know you well. <laughs> and yes. uh, But I feel like whenever I do speak with you, like whenever I see you in my inbox or in my a social message or something, I, I get I get excited. I'm like, oh, it's it's like a missive from from a knowledgeable philosophical uh-huh. person in our industry. And <laughs> so I always I, I don't know. I've just always been very grateful to know you, um, uh, even though cool. it's not been incredibly. You know, we just haven't known each other well over the years. But oh, uh, that's sweet. Thank you. Yeah, you too. You know, I've, I've been i've I've not moved around. You know, you've uh, you've tried different things. You know, I'm still. <laughs> I'm still toiling away at the only thing I can do, you know? <laughs> well, see, I, my perception of it was you actually found something you're good at <laughs> and I'm out there wandering in the wilderness, but <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I, I think, you know, what's been happening in the last sort of year or so, I mean, I think, you know, everybody's trying to find something else that they might be good at, frankly, you know? Um, but, um, but it's difficult when you've been doing the same thing for such a long time. You know, it's it's very difficult to just sort of pick up and, and find something else, you know, especially when you're, you're not 20 or 30 anymore, you know, or even yeah. 40 come to that, you know. Yeah. Um, and then that's the problem with a lot of artists, too. I mean, a lot of the people that I'm working with, and I think a lot of artists in general, uh, are just finding a whole different way of trying to earn a living. Um, you know, look at all the, the options that they've got, you know, and it's, it's really challenging, you know, it's really, it's unprecedented, you know, it's funny because, you know, there's, it's not like there's a plan B, you know, it's not like nobody prepared for this and then, well, we just got a plan B, you know, plan B is really, what is our plan, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to get to that question, but since you've gone there, I'll, I'll dive in on that topic. Yeah. What has this meant? I, I, my perception of a lot of the artists you work with um, is that they're they're working artists. You yeah. know, they yeah. they um, they're active. They perform. They record. They 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 work. You know, they they stretch sort of the boundaries of what it means to be a recording art. You know, they might work yes. with an orchestra or a symphony or small jazz. Con- you know, they're they're very creative but working artists. Right. Um, 
what has this meant for specifically the artists on your roster? How have they reacted? Well, you know, you're right. I mean, most of them are working artists and, and most of them, with the exception of one, um, which would be Hugh Laurie, who has a, has a day job. Um, you know, they're, they're by and large, just like many other artists, 80, 90% of their income, you know, on a yearly basis is through touring. Um, it's through recording, it's through touring. And, you know, taking that away has, has really been the biggest challenge, you know, for, um, for, for, for many of them. Um, I mean, there are one or two that can write it out, you know, that's significant enough you know, that have enough money that have, that have made their money essentially and can live and perhaps, you know, live by not working again if they have to, you know, but it's, it's you know, looking at all those options that they have and when I can go through them and, um, and finding what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with, you know, and redoing a, a, a way of earning a living, you know, and I was just joking with one of them before Christmas about something, which is sort of what a way to make a living, eh? You know, uh, I mean, really, you know, because the kind of things that they're doing now, we would have not given, you know, two thoughts to, um, you know, prior to uh, prior to having to come off the road and uh, and having no livelihood, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Are there are there any are there any? I want to talk about some of the obvious things like live streaming yeah. and broadcasting from home and all that. But are there yeah. have there been any? new creative interesting opportunities that have come up that you might not have either seen before or entertained before no i mean none of my artists none of my current artists are comfortable doing live streaming um for different reasons um whether it's the personality whether it's the fact that you know the live streaming it, the the issues with live streaming i mean like a band like helmet for instance yeah. there's a physical aspect to what they do playing live and um and you know the whole idea of being up on a stage and having an audience you know there's no mosh pit you know when it comes to live streaming you know <laughs> there's, no, there's <laughs> nothing to, there's nothing to feed off you know yeah. um you know uh, you're telling stories to a screen or you're telling stories or anecdotes you're not responding to anything uh it's a it's a form of acting in that regard there's challenges sort of technology wise that make it difficult and some are more comfortable taking those kind of risks than others um i mean i've seen a lot of live streams some of them have been very good a lot of them have been lord awful quality wise you know and yeah. it just feels like a setback you know and um you know for an artist like joe jackson for instance who's very specific about the, the the kind of show that he puts on the pacing of the show the 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 band the format um, all of those things go out the window when it comes to live streaming. So live streaming, unfortunately, or whatever for, for my clients has not really been an option. Um, I mean, it's really just been a question of sort of taking stock inventory of the kind of things that they might want to do or they're comfortable doing and looking at exercising some of those, but taking stock of their career as a whole and the different ways in which they've made a livelihood and the aspects that could affect that. So you know, a lot of people have been doing signed lyric sheets, which fans love. Um, who wouldn't, you know, want to, uh, their, their favorite lyrics and written dedicated to them, you know, and I think some people have been very comfortable doing that. Handling special merchandise items, you know, that are exclusive, um, that involve a personal touch in some regards. Um, you know, guitar lessons, 
you know, it's something that people seem to really love, you know, love yeah. doing. And, and one or two of my clients do that and, and, and like doing that, generally like doing that. Uh, nobody I'm working with is doing Cameo, you know, which seems to be taking it one bridge too far. <laughs> you know, the whole idea of selling five minutes of your time, yeah. you know. Yeah. Is it just a little uncomfortable? You know, I don't know. I think you, Laurie, should sell five minutes of his time, and he just sits there and berates you. <laughs> he, he, he could do that. But berates in a very British way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. was. It's funny yeah. because I was recently. Uh, I, I I'm I'm almost afraid to admit this, but I have this weird fondness for the uh, the Ang Lee version of Sense and Sensibility, and I watch yeah. it every couple of years, and I always forget about the you the Laurie character, and when, when he comes on screen, I just think, that's I, I want him to be like that in real life. That's right, right. Yeah, usually usually in real life is, apart from the wit, uh, he's blessed with a remarkable wit, but, but in real life, he's you know, he's obviously known in this country for one particular role. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, in real life, he could, he could be polar opposite, you know, from that, that particular character, you know, and it's almost like an apologist sort of role that he plays, you know, to, <laughs> you know find that. that's not me, you know, uh, but, but funnily enough to this day, I still get letters from people saying you're the only person that could cure me, you know. Um, that's amazing or i'm a doctor and i'm inspired by you know this and, and it's it is amazing yeah. it's remarkable but you know taking inventory is really just looking at you know record deal the record deals that they have uh the record deals that they could do publishing situations you know whether any publishing deals are up for renewal or not one or two have flirted of uh, my clients have flirted with well, no, they've not flirted, but have, have, have received invitations to sell part of their intellectual property rights, whether it's their publishing copyrights, whether it's their writer's shares, whether it's their them, you know, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and I've got one or two that could do that, uh, but choose not to. And then the others, you know, the people that you approach approach about things like that are really looking at you know, seven figure type income on a yearly basis rather than tens of thousands. They're looking at hundreds of thousands of millions of thousands or whatever, you know. And so, you know, those things are not an option, but just take an inventory and looking at what you can get, you know. And and frankly that the the inventory aspect of it has has been the biggest one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest heartbreaking things, you know, in terms of looking at it now particularly in regard to record companies and historic deals and the historic deals that some of my artists are saddled with and the economic disparity, you know, of, um, of, of where the money is in the record industry right now. And I'm actually just writing something right now. I know that last thing I wrote was some music business worldwide, but I'm actually just going to write something for myself and just to put on my own whatever and LinkedIn and things and just particularly about that economic disparity, which is, you know, in times like this is kind of heartbreaking, you know? Um, I mean, yeah. the, the musicians, you know, who's, who's particularly the, the, the commercial work, you know, that they've had and the body of work and the, the Zenith, if you like, of their career where that work is tied up and, um, and, and the difficulty in terms of trying to 
establish any sense of parity or not even parity, but just economic fairness, um, you know, in that is, is such a struggle. So um, that's an unfortunate backdrop, you know? Yeah. Well, um, you're bringing up something that I've been struggling to, um, or, or that I've been turning over in my head over the last maybe 10 or 10 days, three weeks, whatever it is, really since the Dylan news about his publishing, uh, yeah. his deal. And I've been struggling to, to articulate through my mouth and through my, my writing utensil, what, what's been going on in my head and heart, which is, um, and I think it, it also relates to what you're talking about with the record deals, which is, um, first of all, I don't begrudge anybody doing what they want with their money right. and their property. Like that's, I have no opinion or vote over any of that. But what it raises for me is that um, artists are often put into situations where they don't or can't, and we can parse that out, um, bet on themselves. Yeah. And so now we have what looks to me from the outside, like largely a generation of artists. Um, I'm still waiting for somebody to do the analysis of the average age of the artists that are doing most of these deals, Mm -hmm. artists, uh, producers, whoever it is that, that are, that are, that are selling off their catalogs, but it's a generation from my perception of artists that it's the cumulative effect of the things you're talking about that at the, when they were at the peak of their career, um, they were doing quite well and thought they were doing quite well, but really what it was is they were doing well enough. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They, they, they weren't getting the lion's share and they, and the, there's, there's a fundamental, I know this isn't original thought, but there is a fundamental problem at the heart of our business as it relates to dealing with artists that is just different from the film and and recorded visual business and the way intellectual property is created managed contracted and i don't i don't know what the way out is yeah Um, i don't i'm not that type of visionary and i'm not even sure why it's so heartbreaking to me to see these deals happen Mm. but when when an artist is is at that that point in their career where that where they're selling off a cultural asset i don't know it's just Mm -hmm. it's disturbing to me and the other point that it that it brings to me is that um there will never be change in copyright laws if somebody's willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a collection of assets that means that they know they're going to be able to monetize that for such a long time that copyright is essentially in perpetuity now there's yeah. never go, nothing yeah. will ever go to public domain ever again yeah so that's my rant i apologize but i, I yeah, wonder yeah. If, if if any of that resonates with you and how, how you're thinking about this yeah it 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 does resonate and i'm thinking a great deal about it i mean i i i can understand why you know bob dylan stevie nicks lindsey buckingham neil young uh now rogers um dave stewart i mean i can understand you know why these artists are taking the money now, regardless of the tax implications of that, you know, taking the money now and banking it and doing what they want to do with it. Um, You know, because I think a lot of people look at the industry now and it's not the industry that they grew up with. Um, You know, and I think the idea of having that money now and choosing to invest it or doing what you're doing with it is more attractive than feeling like you're slugging it out and seeing the money come to a trickle and slowing, you know, slowly trickling through on a year-by-year basis. Some artists you know, need that trickle. They need that blow because perhaps the deal that they could do would not be big enough by the time you take into account corporate tax. 
you know, a, a capital gains tax, especially, you know, with, with a new administration coming in um, that, that, that might have an impact on that, that type of level of earnings, you know. Um, I, I, think, I think the hardest thing for me with that, when we, specifically when we talk about copyrights, it's an, 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 an economic parity. Um, I, I think the biggest struggle for many is, and, I, and I've seen quotes like broken model, you know, being banded around and the, you know, the effect of streaming, you know, in the music industry. And, you know, streaming is a great thing. I mean, it's a, an, an amazing thing. I mean, it's revolutionized our access to music. I can find things. I don't have to rely on the gatekeepers of the press um, and opinions. I mean, I can just navigate my own way around it. It's terrific. You know, it's not so much the effect of streaming itself, you know, on the business. It's the economic parity of streaming and how that money goes and where it goes to, you know, in terms of what the artist eventually ends up with. That's really causing a lot of the problems. And the broken model, in my mind, is the application of a royalty-based system that was devised, you know, 50, 60 years ago that has been applied to do method of commercialization and how we do business and sell business. And, and by and large, every effort attempt to resist that, you know, particularly the major record company level, to resist that, you know, and break that model away and strip it down and come up with a new method of remuneration, you know, that is not attached to the royalty method, you know. So, you know, I've, I've kind of diverted a little bit there, you know, no, but, no. Um, but I think, you know, on the, on the publishing world, it, it it, I always looked at publishing, and this is probably sentimental, you know, but I always looked at publishing as, as part of an artist's legacy. It's, it's your estate. Um, and if you have nobody that you want to pass any of that estate onto, you know, then God bless, you know, sell it, go forth, take the money, do what you want with it now, spend it, give it away, whatever you want to do with it. But, you know, I, I look at some artists and I, I've always had this sort of, you know, naive, you know, view that, you know, you, you know, your work in music in particular, you know, your work, your copyrights, you know, whether it's your recorded copyrights, your publishing copyrights, it's your work, it's your legacy, it's your yeah. body. And it's like, who wouldn't want to give that to their kids? Who want to give that to their family? And let them administer it and keep it in the family and administer it and, 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 and control it as much as you can. And, and I, but I think that's only your ability to do that is only dependent on an income stream and not being attached to deals that were written 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, that, that, that don't allow you to have that, whether it's a publishing deal or whether it's a record deal. And, um, and, and, you know, we all know about the Copyright Act of 1976. We all know about, you know, the attempts, and I'm going through it right now, went through it with one of my ex-clients, you know, the attempts to actually, you know, regain control of masters. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in, in the other instance, it was successful. In the current instances, it has been resisted, you know, beyond resistance, you know. Um, so, you know, I... I, I Rather than continuing the daily fight, you know, if you could look at it and look at some of the multiples that are being paid right now for the publishing 
I mean, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, you know, times are the kind of multiples. And for an artist that's 60, 70 years old, even 50 years old, you know, there's a lot yeah. you could do with that money, even after tax. Well, it's funny. You know? It feels very, and again, I, it feels very predatory at this particular moment in time yeah. because you're sitting down with an artist who can't otherwise work right now and can't right. otherwise generate massive income right now, um, who would maybe typically go out and do a 30-day U.S. tour um, right. and then take two years off. Um, it's, it, it's just such a perfect storm for getting those pitches. But your other point is that if somebody's willing to pay a 20 or 30x multiple, that to me just says, well, wow, what's my asset really worth? Right. Because if they're paying me 25x, um, what are they making from it? And that's that I think that goes back to my earlier point, which is I just nobody I, I think there's very few instances where anybody gets the artist to think that way. Yeah. Um, and uh, because, you know, there's so many of us that make money from artists. And um, I don't know, it's it's the, the 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 flaws in the deals are, are exactly, you know, you're you've hit the nail on the head. And um it's 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 another topic that I've I've often wondered about is I, I sort of hate the um the narrative of the streaming services are ripping off artists. Yeah, me too. Me you too. know, because yeah. I know plenty of artists that are getting paid directly by the streaming services that are happy as clams. Oh yeah, they're yeah. <laughs> making a living out of it. That's right. That's I right. do too. Some of my clients, you know, very comfortable with what they're getting. Yeah, know? it's been masterful spin on behalf of the major rights holders, not even the major rights holders, on the industry of rights holders to pit the um to pit the streaming services and the artists sort of against each other in that way or to try to build yeah. that narrative yeah. um it's 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 very interesting it's very yeah interesting. well well you know paying over the odds is is interesting because it's paying over the odds uh, the, i mean we know where the money's coming from the money's not coming from within the record industry the money's coming from you know, venture capitalists, you know, who are giving money to people within the record industry to make these kind of deals. And it's interesting that, you know, the artists that might only earn $100,000 a year, not chump change, you know, in terms of sort of publishing royalties, they're not interesting. <laughs> they're not the kind of deals that they're in. And, and the majority of artists outside of the top 5%, you know, uh, what you would consider middle class, you know, that maybe earn between 50 and $200,000 a year, you know, within that publishing sort of realm. But they're not the artists that are interested, you know, to, to, to the venture capitalists, um, to the companies that are involved in this, and we know who they are, you know. Uh, and, and a lot of that is, is what is it worth, is, is the question. Because, again, going back to the way a lot of these deals were structured, you know, particularly record deals and publishing deals, the way they were structured 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago was, you know, perhaps they did give them advances that were a little bit higher than perhaps, you know, the record sales, you know, would, would, would merit. Well, not so much higher, but they were higher in terms of how those advances were going to recoup. But what it was doing was sort of building a catalog and building an asset and building a massive amount of assets 
that over the course of time that they would fight to keep, you know, for, for forever, essentially, you know, which is what we're looking at. Building a, a, a massive trove of assets that, you know, Len, Bla- Len Blavatnik, you know, paid $3.3 billion for uh, Warner's is now valued at more than $12 billion, you know, and, and Vivendi, which owns Universal, sold a 10% stake for $3 billion, and now the company is valued at $30 billion, you know, but... Um, but, you know, it's valued at that because of the assets that it owns and controls. That's right. You know, and it's the That's accumulation right. of all these masters on the record division sides. It's the accumulation of all these masters, you know, th- that are the assets. So, you know, they're buying these assets and they're probably paying over the odds now. But all they're doing is leveraging the value of these assets in 5, 10, 15 years time when they sell and flip it for, you know, those kind of profits. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting point, though, is that these assets, um, it's almost like commercial real estate in that they're they're always worth more over time. Right. Always. So we can go, you know, you you talked about the 50, 60, 70 year time horizon in the contracts. Um, Just what how this industry's grown and what a you know, what an Elvis Presley master has been, has been worth over that amount of time or the Beatles catalog or or not even that, you know, you know, Dave Clark five, you know, Dave Clark was able to basically walk away from the mainstream music business and live the remainder of his life off of what, three to five years worth of hits, if even right. like what, what was the, what was the heart of Dave Clark's career? Three years? I'm not even sure. And right. through his own ownership, through having that sort of foresight, I don't, I, I, the Dave Clark story is fascinating, but um, you know, he lived quite a fine life. Um, yeah off of yeah. three years worth of hits. But um, yeah. I, I thought another question for you um, on, on, I guess on this topic is you mentioned a couple of your artists, either people came sniffing around about their interest or they, they said, let's think about this, whatever the Genesis was. Yeah. At some point this came on the radar screen for the level of artists you work with in general. Um, what would be, what gets them to know? Is it that the money's not enough or is it that they have this other sense of what it is they're selling, this, this, this feeling about what they're selling? Uh, what gets them to know how to make the decision or? No, no. What, what gets them to de- the decision being no, not to sell? Oh, uh, you know, having people around them that, um, that can, can portray the pros and cons, you know, of doing these kind of things. Um, by and large that, and I'm not referring to me, I'm referring to business managers, one who you know very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so having that type of advice around them, sometimes it is a, it is a, it's not a political decision on their part, but it's a, it's an ethical thing. It's something that, how does it sit with me? How does the idea of selling the rights to my image and my works sit with me. And I'm not even sure that has anything to do with sort of control. Um, if you're, because I've got to feel like if people are buying intellectual property rights within those deals, I can't imagine that they're just going to sign over the catalog for the kind of money that they get, even for the kind of money that they get and say, you can do with me and my works and my image, whatever you want. You know, you can, you can, put my head on Mickey Mouse, you can, whatever you want is good with me. I'm not so sure that, you know, there's got to be some sort of 
you know, you would think, you know, some parameter of control in there. But I think a lot of it is just what they're comfortable with. And, and, you know, for some people as well, um, you know, it's having a choice and, um, and it's how much is enough, you know, and that, and that's a, that's a, how much is enough uh, and at what cost, you know, is, is, seems to be the two kind of key dynamics, you know, in some people's minds, you know, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of us, a lot of people, uh, even musicians, I think even in difficult times like this, you know, they're, they're not just in it for the wealth, you know, um, they're in it for other things too. And, um, and, I, and I think, you know, the whole idea of having financial independence, you know, comes with choices that you can make, you know, and, um, and, you know, creating those choices and being in a lucky situation where you've got that choice as to whether to do these kind of deals or not. And you understand what they mean um, and not wanting the money, not needing the money or, or, or necessarily being comfortable with the way things are structured right now, the level of control that you've got right now. I think that stuff can't be discontinued, you know, yeah. and, and the unfortunate thing is, I would think is that some artists probably do have that struggle, you know, but come to the conclusion that they have no choice, you know, but, but, but again, the, those kind of artists, I, I talked a little bit about that in that last essay that I wrote, but that's mostly on the recording side where sometimes you will want to do those deals or you will have to do those deals because you, what you, you can see what you're getting out of it will perhaps override any long-term aspects to it, you know, in terms of what your needs are right now versus what your needs may or may not be in five years' time or 10 years' time or 15 years' time, you know. Um, and, and the Dave Clark 5 story, which I don't know, is an interesting story because for every one of those, I bet you can find 10 of a Norman Greenbaum story who sold Spirit in the Sky for chump change. And it generates, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you know, through sync placements. I mean, how many times does a song like that pop up, you know, in a commercial or a, a film or a TV show or, you know, whatever it is, you know, and, you know there's, there's more of those instances, unfortunately, than the people that sort of, you know, chose to, you know, keep it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I only know the broad contours i used to know the story better but 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 the gist of it is that dave clark um either always owned everything or got it all back very early and took and 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 really took his stuff off the market for a long time and was one of the first artists to do like direct-to-consumer television in the 70s you know the as seen on tv type stuff um just very smart very well managed and um, right and you know (laughs) left this earth a very successful financially secure independent person um right but you know a lot of it had to do with scarcity um yeah and, yeah and uh and and a lot of discomfort i think with the mainstream music business and just deciding yeah. not to do that yeah the disappointment of it i understand that you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Good um i i you know i want to talk a bit about your story because uh, <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is very interesting though, if, if, um, if I could say it to you is that uh, the way you present your business or, or even the way it's uh, sort of, you know, if I go to your, your company's website, 
Um, yeah. There's a very, there's a very human feeling yeah. to the way, um, to the way you present your business world. Um, your story, you, you know, there's a, there's an essay you wrote about your lot, your biography, um, the way you kind of show the inside of your world. It's, it's just a very organic um, feeling. And I feel like it matches, I, I know I'm using sort of like corporate talk to something that's probably very organic for you. Um, but the, the brand feel feels very consistent, right? Like it's like you're, you have artists that have also a very, I don't know, there's, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's a taste to your roster. There's um, a, uh, there's a, um, it just all feels of a, of a, of a part and parcel um, that you've, you've found some artistic and creative and business and lifestyle niche that have all, that have all come to serve you or that you've, you've built a world yeah. um, for yourself. And I wonder one, like, how am, am I insane <laughs> perceiving uh -huh. it that way? How much uh -huh. of that was intentional? And was there a point in your career where you said, I need and want to do something different? Or like, is this what you've been building towards? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I would be lying to say that if I go back to the very beginning, you know, when I started in music, that I had some sort of sense of vision or goal about what I wanted to do with my life or my career, you know, but, but I think as, as I got older and went through a couple of different incarnations in terms of, you know, what I had been doing, you know, work-wise, I think when I, when I did start my own company, which would have been 1990, I think at that point, I, I started to have a sense in my mind that, you know, I, I wanted it to be a reflection of, you know, me and my tastes and the reason why I got into it at the same time and, and, and just try and do business in a way that was, you know, sort of a, a, a day and night thing in terms of reflection of who I was or who I am rather than feel like, I can, I can go and do my day job and be a devil. And then I can go home to my family in the evening and be, you know, a saint, you know. And, um, and I think that works for some people. And I think it does not work for a lot of other people. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I think that's totally fine, you know. And, um, and I think you know, you, you just have to go through the world trying to find, you know, those people that have some sense of empathy about who they are, what they're doing, and what they're looking for in a business partner, and, and what they're not looking for in a business partner, and, and whether there's a match there or not. And I think it's become a lot easier for me to sort of define that or find that definition, you know, as, I, as I've got on and, and, and got older and, and, and just sort of established my company and refined it. And, and I've tried things. I've tried, I've tried working with different people. And by and large, you know, you can sense fairly early on, you know, whether it's going to be a match, you know, or not. And again, I referred to this, you know, what I wrote. Um, you, you can define fairly early on or, or get the sense fairly early on as to whether something's going to work or not. Some things have a natural lifespan. Some things don't have a lifespan, you know. And that's just relationships you know it's just any kind of relationship whether it's a business relationship a, a personal relationship a friendship or whatever it is you know so i i find it difficult to actually take away any personal aspect in terms of how i present myself 
you know, and the things that I'm interested in, how to remove those things and just present it in just a very simple kind of business manner. Uh, I, I, I'd find that really difficult, to be honest, you know. Um, I feel like I need to have something in common, you know, with the people that I work with. And, um, and, and, I, and I feel like there needs to be some sort of sense of understanding as to what the kind of mutual needs are, if you like, you know, and sense of comfort, um, you know, otherwise it's very difficult. I mean, just, you know, waking up and feeling like you don't want to make that call or you don't want to hear from that person or it would just be very, 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 very difficult, you know. And, um, and I guess what I've been trying to tell is the story of, you know, finding my way through the independent world and being very happy in the independent world, but being able to do that at a time when it was difficult, but probably a lot easier to attempt this in the seventies and eighties rather than, you know, the noughties, you know, and, and, and where we are right now, you know, where it's sort of much more difficult. I mean, you can't knock on doors, you know, asking if they have any jobs, you know, in the, in the way that I did, you know, 1978, you know, wandering around London, you know, knocking on record company doors, you know, walking in and just with no resume or anything, you know, I mean, could you imagine that nowadays? Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even get in the building. You couldn't, you couldn't get, get in the, the front building. desk. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. You know. Yeah, even uh, the smallest of independents now are in are in these buildings in New York where you could walk by and there's a doorman and you're not getting yeah. on the elevator. <laughs> yeah, I mean the danger the danger for me is 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 sort of not being nostalgic or too nostalgic about it. Yeah, you know? that's right. And and not necessarily concerned like you know being precious about it in terms of. Well, it was remarkable, you know. Um, what was remarkable was the music and, and the music industry at that time was remarkable. You know, that, that was the fortunate aspect, you know. And, and seeing, you know, g- g- growing up, you know, through at least two remarkable phases in England, you know, which was sort of, you know, 1970s, you know, punk rock, you know, and, and, and then 1980s, C86, movement you know yeah. and the birth of all those incredible bands you yeah. know you know uh, whether it was joy division or new order or the smiths or the koto twins or you know i mean amazing yeah. it's uh, incredible it was just you know it reminds me in a very different way of like you know i love laurel this laurel canyon story and i love that community aspect of it i loved how those people cross-pollinated and there was an exchange of all that ideas but how much talent came through in a relatively short period of time and how condensed it was into a particular community, you know, and it must, it was just like, I mean, a record company and a manager's dream, you know, when you were, when you were working um, in England in the late seventies and early eighties in particular, did you, were you aware of at the time or, or is this just um, superimposed retrospectively um, of the notion of like that there were sort of catalysts were there people that were catalysts like I what's been top of mind for me lately just because I've been reading some stuff about that era is the role that uh, Trevor Horn played yeah and it was like on every record <laughs> there was this yeah. period of time for two or three years that it was Trevor you know made pop, big records the big records yeah. that were coming yeah. out in England um but across crazy genres, like this just bizarre catalyst for, for what was happening in pop music then. Um, 
were there figures like that? Um, like how, what was the, what was the organic nature of the scene versus this notion that there were, there were visionaries? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't recall visionaries. Trevor Horn was, was obviously exceptional, you know, and he was able to transcend, you know, move in very different areas. And, and I think there's aspects of his, I don't know how much of ZTT, you know, he was behind. Certainly he was involved, you know, but there's people with him that were involved in that. Um, I, I think there were musical visionaries who were still around making great music now, you know, and have a remarkable body of work, whether they were people like Elvis Costello or, you know, Nick Lowe. Um, I, you know, I, I think there were a lot of, you know, great artists that came through at that time, you know, Peter Gabriel, you know, a little earlier on, you know, through the prog rock thing, you know, yeah. which is very big in England, just, you know, Rod Stewart, amazing career. I mean, incredible career, whatever you think about his, you know, his the second half of his career is, is by and by, you know, but, but for me, first band I ever saw Rod Stewart and the faces. I mean, damn, when I had hair, I, I used to have my hair cut like Rod Stewart. <laughs> I used to stitch tartan things into my jeans, you know. I, I want to ask. My- I have to ask you about the faces. I mean, um, I don't. I, I, I because I associate you a bit more with like the post-punk sort of late seventies, early eighties on. Yeah. I, I, I just. I, that's. Yeah. All it a, a mental. It's just a mental model I built in my head of you. Um, Talk to me about the faces. Like, it's so funny because, you know, especially in America, there's large swaths of music fans that, you know, they don't know them. If you told them the story, they'd say, oh my God, that's where these people came from. But I feel like it's very hard to underestimate the impact of the faces on British rock music. Absolutely. So what, like, why them? And where did they fit? Like, why did the world need the faces at that time? What, What role did they play? Well, actually, I think they were catalysts, you know, and I, and I think just going back for a second to the, the catalyst thing, I certainly mm-hmm. think that there were record label people that were catalysts, you know, a catalyst in the sense of recognizing something and then being able to exploit it and find it, you know, and develop some sense of identity, you know, in terms of who they were and what they were doing. And obviously I'm talking about Tony Wilson. Yeah. I'm talking about Ivor Watts-Russell. I'm talking about Jeff, Jeff Travis, Daniel, you know, Mute, Alan at Creation. They were, they were catalysts, you know, in terms of again, being fortunate or skillful enough to surround themselves with the kind of people that it would be very, very difficult to do right now. Um, you know, Jack Riviera, you know, had had Nick Lowe, he had Elvis, he had Barney Bubbles as a sleeve designer, you know, uh, you know, they just, there was just out, Tony, Tony Wilson had Alan Erasmus, he had Rob, Rob Gretton, he had Peter Saville, you know, remarkable, right? I mean, just remarkable people that, you know, had these abilities to sort of forge something and be a catalyst. The faces, um, they, they had an attitude um, about what they did and the way in which they presented themselves that was so opposed to what was going on at that time because a lot of music at that time was very polished. Um, There was a prog rock thing that was, you know, crafted and brilliant, some great bands, but brilliant. But the faces, they were like lads, 
you know, so, you know, descendants of the faces, believe it or not, the Sex Pistols, huge faces fans because of their attitude and their approach. Oasis, huge faces fans. You know, in fact, there's a particular Sex Pistols is a really funny version of Steve Jones singing, I think it's Ooh La La, you know, just acoustic, you know, with a guitar. I'm sure you'll find it online, you know. Uh, and there was like a, a, a rock and roll carefree attitude, but it was also like the merging of sort of three or four people and talents that only happens once in a lifetime. And Joe Strummer speaks about this very eloquently at the end of, I think it was The Future is Unwritten, or one of those films where, you know, when he, when he was talking about when he fired Mick Jones, who, who'd become a little bit too large for his, for, for, you know, for the band in terms of, you know, mix, whatever, whatever he was doing or saying, you know, but, but talking much later on about feeling like, you know, you only capture that magic once, you know, and the idea that we could find Mick Jones and bring in another guitar player and just replace him is just not, it's not grounded in any reality, yeah. you know, and, and the moment Ronnie Lane left the faces, you know, and, 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 and Tetsu came in, you know, the moment, you know, you know, Rod's solo career became bigger than the Faces sort of, you know, band career and his priorities shifted towards that. Um, you know, you, you can't just, it's not like we'll get another bass player or we'll get another lead singer. You know, you, you can't, you know, Mick Hucknall can't be the singer of the Faces, you know. Right. I mean, <laughs> that magic happens, you know, so it happens once in a lifetime, you know, and, um, and their music, I mean, their songs, and they all came from very different. I mean, you know, Rod Stewart was from, from the blues, you know, background, you know, the, with, with, um, you know, the, the blues scene and, uh, Long John Baldry, you know, and then Jeff Beck crafting through that, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Wood was the birds, you know, that band, the birds, you know, mm-hmm. before it came running lane, the small faces that people still think the faces in this country, the small faces, you know, yeah. but running lane and Kenny Jones is in the small faces and, and just that unique talent of like, you know, um, two, two or three of them being able to write amazing songs, you know, um, it, in the way that the Eagles, a band like the Eagles could do, for instance, where you've got two or three talents that come together and they can all write those kind of songs, you know, and trade off each other. But the faces were just the epitome of rock and roll. Their records were, their live shows were, could be an absolute shambles. I mean, the first time I ever saw them play, they came on an hour late. They were drunk. Ronnie Wood couldn't stand up. He was falling down, you know. Um, sound like the, the replacements. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a little bit. Well, the replacements, I mean, you know, the Black Crows, the complete descendants, you know, in terms of the attitude and the, the sound of the faces and everything, but just songs that endure, you know, uh, and, and, and they, they were the definitive bad boy kind of rock and roll, you know, band that was just having a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you got the sense that they were like human beings there. You know, well, um, it's interesting because it seems like they also they stepped into the breach that the Stones left open when the Stones became, for lack of a better way to say it, like jet settery and less yeah. accessible. The yeah. faces, you know, remained that band that people sort of related to. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah totally relatable. I have one great memory uh, of, of I was leaving the office in London. I had an office in central London. I was leaving late one Friday night and I'm walking down the road and I see this guy sitting on the sidewalk and he's got his back to the pub and he's got his legs on the sidewalk and he's got a pint and a cigarette. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to step over him. He's not going to move his legs. I hope this doesn't get uncomfortable. And as I get closer to him, I realize it's Ronnie Wood. Of course. I was going to say it was Ronnie Wood, wasn't it? <laughs> so he's, he's got the pint, he's got the cig, he's got his long legs sticking out. And, and I get close to him and he sees me and he looks up and he, oh, the only thing he did was like, he nods at me and says, all right, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm all right, you know? And I just <laughs> step over his legs. And my first thought was, I got to go back to the office and get my nods as good as a wink album and dash down here now, you know, but he's out there on the sidewalk on his own with nobody just having a pine Friday night. And I'm just like, Oh my God, you know, yeah. it's Ronnie Wood. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to read um, stories about the stones or even Ronnie in particular, but how, how long he was around and like, he was, yeah. he was not, he was a known factor, you know, he, I, I think that probably because of his personality and his sort of, uh, the, the sort of bubbling foible kind of personality he puts out there, he's, he's, he's very much underrated. Yeah. Uh, and then of course the role he's kind of forced to play in the stones, I think boxes him in a little bit musically, but, yeah. um, yeah, he's a much larger character and probably a more important character in the in the late 60s, early 70s British music scene than I think he gets acknowledgement for. Absolutely. You look at all those great faces songs and it's Stuart Wood, you know. So in the same way that you had, you know, Jagger Richards, Lana McCartney, Stuart, I'm not comparing their works, but Stuart Wood, you know, all those amazing faces songs you know, from those albums. They weren't around for that long a time, unfortunately, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, like the Beatles, they weren't around for that long a time. But I mean, what a, what a legacy and what a, you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking at my Genesis Faces Publications book, which I don't know if you've ever seen, you know. I haven't seen um, that one, no. no. It's, uh, it's a tome. You know, Genesis Publications do these sort of, you yeah. know, complete books. And uh, and unfortunately, you know, Rod did participate in that. You know, it's, it's got the signatures of all the other guys. It came out after Ronnie Lane had died, unfortunately. But Ronnie Lane, amazing songwriter, you know, had success on his own, modest success. And there's a great film, actually, uh, called The Passing Show, The Life and Times of Ronnie Lane, which is up on YouTube. And if you have any interest in the faces, just it's, it's beautiful. It's yeah, really beautiful. The, the, the naivety of it and just sort of how is he a member of the faces and how could he do this after being in the faces, you know, uh, uh, it's so, it's so magical, you know? Well, it's yeah. funny you could, that, that you mentioned the Eagles and, um, and the fact that there were multiple songwriters. Um, it does seem like they could have had, they could have had a very dominant career throughout the seventies. Um, who knows if they would have gone, you know, the 40, 50 year mark, but yeah. you could, you could imagine if, if, if Rod had been less sort of agitated about having a solo career um, that they could have been, they could have been a very meaningful band for a long time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, this is one of the problems of being in a band. One of the, the, when you look at the pros and cons of being in a band, you know, the pros are, 
you, you've got a group of people that is your support system that you can work with and you can write with and develop things and go out and, and you know, I mean, being live on, live on stage is you're at your most vulnerable, you know. So the idea of having this band behind you at all times and it being a collective thing, you know, is, is very comforting. You know, where it becomes a problem, which I think it was for Rod Stewart, is feeling boxed in by the kind of record that you feel like you've got to make to be the faces rather than the kind of record that you want to make. You know, it's like, it's fine Glyn Johns producing a Faces album, but, you know, um, you know, I, I want, um, you know, Muscle Shoals, you know, or I want Tom Dowd because I want to make something that's sort of, you know, lusher and, um, and, and a little bit less rough around the edges, you know, and I think from what I read and from what I know, you know, that was the, 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 the dynamic, you know, going on there, but that's the dynamic with everybody. Right. And I'm sure Noel Gallagher felt boxed in personalities aside, you know, within Oasis it's like, I've really got to make another, you know, you know, turn it up as loud as possible can be, you know, record for my brother to sing my songs and just, you know, um, you know, the Smiths, you know, I remember there was a great comment from Johnny Marr when he, when they were talking about like the reasons why I left the Smiths and I'm sure it was, amplified or exaggerated a little bit he said he said i i've been working on this piece of music for for so long and i was so happy with it and I, I thought it was such a beautiful kind of riff you know and i gave it to you know morrissey and oh. it brings it back to me and the lyrics are some girls are bigger than others <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i knew at that point that maybe it was time to think about moving on <laughs> Yeah, I think that illustrates the point. Um, all right. Well, before I let you go, um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Bowie for a minute, yeah. um, because that's sort of the context with which uh, we first met. Yeah. Um, was he? Where did David fit for you as a fan growing up? Um, it's always interesting to me to talk to um, to to people that grew up in England, um, especially in the early mid seventies. Um, because again, I think he's one of those artists where he's been around so long, we forget the impact early on yeah. and put aside, you know, the, the misfires in the early part of it, you know, the Anthony Newley and all the other stuff, but you know, people talk about like that top of the pops, um, appearance for Ziggy or, um, Starman. yeah, Starman, sorry. Starman, um, yeah. uh, you know, where, were you, a, were you a Bowie fan, um, in the seventies and eighties and, you know, where did he fit in the Pantheon for you? Um, he, he, where he fitted was, was that, you know, I grew up in, in the North of England, which is a very small mentality, small town. Um, growing up in an environment where you, you're, you're led to believe and you're told that nothing is possible. And, um, you know, where you where you grow up, you're born here, you die here, you know, this is what it is. And this is what we have to offer. Choose one. And David, David represented an other world. He represented another aspect and another world um, that was inconceivable. You know, so when, when you, when you're whatever age I was, you know, when I see Starman on top of the pops and I see this guy, it's not so much sort of, I want that, you know, it's more, where does that come from? You know, um, 
Yeah, I was a huge David Bowie fan. The first real to real that I had was Man Who Sold the World, you know. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I was so struck by how it sounded. I'd never heard anything sound like that before. I and mean, it was just like, oh, it's incredible, you know, um, you know, hearing that. So he was otherworldly. Um, it was not, an, an, David Bowie was not another, an artist like The Clash, whereas when I first saw The Clash, it was like, I want to be involved in this, you know, not, not so much just sort of the them, but this is so exciting to me. I somehow want to be involved in music. David represented another world that was so foreign and so abstract, you know, that it was sort of inconceivable, you know. So, um, so from the first moment I met David, you know, from the very first meeting I had with David in Bill's office to then get the job and then sit down in his Coco's living room, actually, you know, with him and for him to sit there with his sort of, you know, his jeans on and his J crew sweater, you know, and have his legs crossed. And I remember we were talking about like, you know, doing this TV show and he was like, yeah, I know, I know, I know what they're going to want me to do. They're going to want me to just sing all the old stuff. And, you know, he's, he's like, Rebel, rebel. It sounds like mocking himself. And, <laughs> and of course, to me, you know, at the age of 18, hearing him sing that or whatever, I was like, yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so otherworldly that I was so fortunate to, um, to, to see and play a tiny, tiny, tiny part of, you know, uh, for 10 years, 12 years, whatever it was, you know. And, um, and it's just... I mean, I'm, I could actually still cry, I think, actually, about him no. dying, you know. No, I, I, I was actually getting a little choked up talking to yeah. you because, you know, it's that it, these yeah. are the days right now, you know, his birthday and the anniversary yep. of his passing. And I mean, look, you know, the artist to the end. I yeah. mean, his art and his what he created, who he created, you know, because I think I think when I when I was 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 involved he was really David Jones, right? I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, it was David Bowie, obviously, but he was, his persona, his character was sort of, you know, he dealt with him on a kind of David Jones kind of nature. You know, there was, it, it gone past that period of kind of defining, redefining, you know. Um, but um, but I, I think that's just going to endure. I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody that's going to be able to do that the way he did it ever again as yeah. eloquently and as brilliantly and it was just so perfect the perfectly desperately sad you know that um you know and that body of work and what it means to so many people i i still i mean I, there's still things that come to me now you know um where i'll hear a song or i mean that song starman reminds me of when i used to pick peas in the summer and I was at school, you know, just leaving school. And we picked peas in the field and we'd like down the bags, you know, when Starman came on. And the same as same way as like when You Wear It Well came on, you know. That's so know, amazing. You know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, to have that memory and then to have the memory of like 2000 and Heathen, you know, and reality and, you know, the light bulb. It's, it's incredible. I mean, God, what do we live for? You know, yeah. Just music, you know. Were you were you there when we did the show at Roseland where um, he played all of Heathen and then all of Low, or maybe it was yeah. the other way around, and yeah, then the yeah. little greatest hits? That was, yeah, that was a peak experience, and uh, I was with uh, my wife at the time, and she said, <laughs> and she said, "Oh my God, 
David sings from his hips. <laughs> and, you know, I yeah. have that image in my head of him at the microphone, how he sings from his hips, but uh, right, very Elvis, right. very Elvis. But um, right, yeah. right. All those shows, those shows, the four shows, you know, in Queens, you know, Manhattan, the little Staten Island show, you know. The marathon, um, yeah. The, the Jimmy's Bronx, you know, yeah. the Jimmy's Cafe up in the Bronx, you know, and, and the book, you know, that um, – um, forgetting her name, Santos, you know, published mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. photographs and everything. Yeah, gr- amazing, amazing memories. You know, Gail lives up here. I bump into Gail from time to time. Oh, really? Yeah. Is she yeah. working? She is working. Yeah, she's working all the time. Yeah. Good. She does a lot of work with Lenny Kravitz and she does a lot of her, her own work. She sang on the recent um, national album. Um, she sang one or two songs either on the national album or um, the lead singer. Um, oh, uh, Matt. Uh, Matt Beringer. Matt Beringer, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think it was the national album, though. She sang on a couple of songs on the national album. And she still s- sings like nobody else can. She was a revelation on the reality tour. She oh. had really, that band had come into its own. The facility he had with that band to be able to play any part of his catalog convincingly, yeah. Yeah. it was, yeah. it, that was, that was a, impressive yeah. impressive she, she was a secret weapon in that band really you know i mean total and total sweetheart still is you know yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you sure. thank you for your time and for your hope, insights and yeah. hope we covered enough you know what you wanted <laughs> i could do another hour or two with you but mm-hmm. um it's so great to see you talk to you soon bye bye Thank you so much, David Whitehead. I hope this was just part one of many parts of our discussion. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.